Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Good morning. I'm your host this morning, Soyini Koch, and we have with us Mark Borelli, Managing Director of Corporate Finance Associates, an investment banking firm that works with business owners and CEOs to help them buy and sell their businesses. Good morning, Mark. Morning, Sonoyin. Well, I'd love to start off by just talking a little bit about the market. My understanding is that the M&A markets are the best that they've been in many, many years since the Great Recession. So tell us a little bit about what you're finding in, in 2015 with M&A. I think you're right. Um, actually, two weeks ago was the Atlantic um, Capital Connection for the Association of Capital Growth, about 1,200 people here, private equity groups. And the general consensus talking to everybody there, so this is just not my experience. But what we see in the market is multiples are back at 2007 levels. Um, people are paying good prices for businesses, even some silly prices for businesses. And the general feeling amongst most of the private equity groups where they wish they had more assets to sell in this market rather than buying, but that's the way it goes. So definitely it is time to buy. Now, how long this will last, who knows? Um, it's being propelled by the Fed, you know, with interest rates basically at zero, so debt is very cheap. Also, the banks have come back and the financial institutions for lending purposes, so they can get really good leverage on the deals, which is driving the prices. So this should continue for a while, but like all things financial, who knows when it'll stop, and there's never a warning when the music stops and see who's left without a chair. So I think what we have to concern about is, you know, will the Fed raise rates? There's a debate about how much and how that'll affect the markets. Even if they do, currently the feeling is that it's not going to affect things much because all the money's pouring into the U.S. to be safe from everything that's happening elsewhere in the world. But again, if there was some sort of traumatic political or world issue that could cause people to get nervous, the mic can dry up. And it's amazing how quickly it does. Now, you said that some of the multiples were silly. Are there specific industries that you're finding are particularly hot? Um, There are quite a few. I mean, what I see is medical devices people are interested in. Um, Software as a service, SaaS-based businesses people are really interested in. They like that. But even some, you know, old businesses that you wouldn't think had that much attention, people still paying good multiples for it. I mean, it depends on the characteristic of the business. And so it's hard to make generalities. When you say the characteristics of the business, what what does that mean? Well, I think what I always look to is what is it about the business that somebody wants to buy it? You know, does it have a good track record? Is it, be, is it profitable? Is it growing? Has it got a good management team, diverse customer base, loyal customer base? And you go through that collection of items, and if they tick off most of those boxes, then somebody wants it. So it sounds to me like those are perennials and the fundamentals of, of a good, solid business that stand the test of time. That oh, are Without a doubt. I mean, there are a couple of things, you know, I have a list, but you know we can go through the few key things that I think really matter to a business, and what makes a difference when you can look at other businesses. And if I was to look at those, you know, my my top few, starting at the top, would be the quality of the management team. And um, one of the things I say with companies is, I can sell a company, I cannot sell a job. So if your management team are a bunch of yes men, I don't care what their backgrounds are, or what their resumes say, if they just do exactly what you say, and you control every part of your company. And a lot of CEOs, entrepreneur CEOs are like that because it is control for them. This is their business. But if your management team don't actually bid on the contracts, don't know the profitability, don't know the strategy, can't all sing in unison with where the goals of the company are, then you don't really have a management team. You have a job. And that's very hard to sell. So, 
you know, I often, I have spoken to you about this. You know, one of the things I look at is I, I use a bad analogy in some ways, but, you know, think of your management team like a Navy SEAL team. Not that I want them killing people because that's not good. But the key is everybody on the team knows the strategy. They all know what the mission's objective is. If something happens to one of them, they know how they're going to cover that shortfall and still continue with the mission. That is what your business needs with a management team. And this is especially true for a lot of elder entrepreneurs who are looking to exit. I mean, these guys want to sell and go live in Florida or go travel the world, and you cannot walk out the door if you're it. You know, you're not, if you can't be replaced, then you got to hang around. And so beyond the management team, what's next? Um, the next couple of items are, you know, competitive strategy um, or sustainable competitive advantage, let's say. What is it that keeps you ahead of your competition? I think as Jack Wells said, if you don't have one, don't play. You know, you, you got to have a sustainable competitive advantage. And I think, you know, most companies don't actually even know what there is, is. And then they don't create their strategy around and everything else, which they're losing. So I, I think that's key. And that, that is not one that's obvious. But if you've got one and you can position yourself in the marketplace, you've got something unique that sets you apart, allows you to put some price premium on your product, make higher margins, that's really great. Um, you need a sustainable, uh, not a sustainable, sorry, an executable strategy. And I think that comprises, as I often think, of three parts. First and foremost, you need a strategy. And you'd be amazed how many companies I come across where they don't really have a strategy. It's kind of like, yeah, I thought about it on the drive in from home this morning, and um, that's it. And as I tell them, you know, if it's not written down, it's a dream. So the strategy has to be written down, um, first and foremost. Then secondly, it has to be shared with the key people who have to execute it. If they don't know what the strategy is, they can't execute it. And if nobody's executing it, it's not getting executed in any way. And then it has to be such that, A, it's real to the people. You know, handing them a treatise of 8,000 pages, nobody's ever going to read it, understand it, or care about it. It'll just be used as a doorstop. So it needs to be simple. You know, I work with things that I call a one-page plan. Mm -hmm. You know, just can you shove it on one page? Mm -hmm. It helps you focus. And there's been all this data, and many of us have seen it, that says people who write down goals, strategies, execute them more readily than people who don't. So that's your strategy. The next part, it is, has to be executable. And, you know, what I often see is people have a strategy on one hand, and they have a budget or a business on the other hand, and the two just never merge. And it's like they keep thinking they can't understand why they can't complete the strategy, but they don't have the resources, either human or financial, to execute it. You know, and you look at them and you say, well, how is this getting done? Well... You know, I'll just hire people. Well, yeah, but that's going to take six, nine months to hire the right people. Where are you going to get the money from? And they haven't thought through these things. The two have to be merged and be realistic. So, of course, you're preaching to the choir about the strategy thing. Um, you know, that's my whole practice. But one of the things I find, and I would love to hear your thoughts on, you know, we say these buzz buzzwords like management team and right. competitive advantage and executable strategy. And I find that, when I'm speaking to CEOs, what they hear is wah, 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 wah. it just like makes no sense to them and they really don't care. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts on how we can actually get CEOs to start caring about this stuff. And then second, why do you think it's so hard for CEOs to really wrap their mind around some of these things and, and, and execute them? Like, you know, actually putting in a management team that can function beyond their charismatic leadership or really understanding their competitive advantage? What, so I, that's, that's really a two-part question. I, I think it comes down to two things. Um, unfortunately, one of them is ego. Um, entrepreneur CEOs have created a business, 
And it's a successful business, and you cannot take that away from them. But because they've created it themselves and they've been responsible for its success, they cling on to being responsible for everything of it. Um, and they're very involved in it. And what I say, you know, if I look at any business that I'm selling, I can look at the entrepreneur and I can say to him before I even walk in the door of your company, you have one of two skills or both. You either invented something or you're a great salesman or you're a great salesman and you invented something. Primarily, you're a great salesman because if you can't sell, you don't have a business. So they're all great salesmen, which means they know their products. They know their top customers. They know whether or not they've got money in the bank. How their financial performance is, they're not really sure. They may have a CFO who can tell them, but a lot of times they have a glorified controller who doesn't really know. They'll tell you all their legal agreements are the same. They're not. There are all sorts of variations. Their HR is a mess. Their IT is a mess because they're not interested in that. That isn't what drives them. What drives them is selling. And so when you talk to them about a strategy and a sustainable competitive advantage in a management team, their strategy is I'm going to sell. I'm going to do what I do and grow this business. And, you know, sustainable well, I'm selling. I'm succeeding. I sell. So they don't see a need for it. And what I think the difficulty is when you say to them, look, and what I, I try and say to them, and you're right, they hear these, this, the old peanut parents, you know, wah, 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 when we talk about it. And I, so I say to them, all right, if I take your sales, your executive management team, your leadership team, whoever you want to call them, and I ask them, each one, tell me what your strategy is, what's your sustainable competitive advantage, and how are you executing it? Would I get the same answer? And what I say to them as well is when you come to sell, when we go through the sales process, there's a point where the buyer comes to meet the management team and gets presented their view of the strategy and gets to Q&A them. And, I, and I'll say to them, no, no, here's what your script. You stand up and you say, welcome, Mr. Ms. Buyer. I hope you have a very informative day at my company. I hope my management team will satisfy everything you need to learn and have a good day and sit down. And you don't open your mouth again. Because if you have to open your mouth and save these guys, you don't have a business to sell. And that comes as a bit of a shock to them because they've never thought of it that way. They're always in charge. And that's one of the hardest things when you get people to sell companies is they actually have to let this thing go. This is their life. They have no life other than this business. And so the other thing I often say to them is if you want to see how you're doing, can you step away from your business for three months? Could you just leave? Go sail around the world. Go climb a mountain. And could your team execute the plan and keep that business rolling? And a lot of them sit there and go, oh, I couldn't do that. And then what you dig down, and this is where it gets to your point, is they're so busy focused on the day-to-day -day minutia. They don't lift their eyes up to see where the strategy is taking them, where they're going. They're just focused like, I've got fires, I'm dealing with it. And if you say to them, can you walk away or stop and let your team run it, that means they have to look up. And the team has to look up. And I don't think they do that very well. So how do we get them to care a little bit sooner? Because at the point when they're looking to sell their business, the die has already been cast and most of the time, whatever value they're going to get out of the business at that point has already been created. And so in order to really be effective and to maximize the value that they could get out of the business, they really need to be asking those questions and having this inquiry much sooner. So what are your, how, do, how do we get them to care you know, bef before, soon enough before the sale that a difference can actually be made? That is a good question. That's the one I struggle with. I, I say that most entrepreneurs spend more time getting their home ready for sale than their business. Uh, because they don't think about their business in the same way. You know, if you're selling your house, you walk around it and maybe you notice it or the realtor comes in and says, oh, you need to repaint that wall and the HVAC unit's broken and the door needs to close and, you know, that big stain in the middle of the ceiling has to go. But when they run their business, and th this is not a criticism, but everybody's business is, they run it for them. 
I mean, it's run totally to suit the entrepreneur founder. And what I always say to them is, when we start selling it, it's no longer about you. It's now about the buyers. How do we make their life as easy as possible? How do we make them fall in love with the business? They have to fall in love with it. They have to want it. And them wanting it is not you wanting it. They're totally different. So, you know, think about that. So we have to create something that creates appeal to a buyer. And they, their problem is they say, well, I love it. So everybody must love it. And well, no, not everybody loves your house the way it is. You know, if you have the recline and the big screen TV and the mini fridge next to it, that doesn't necessarily mean everybody wants that. So when you talk about creating appeal or creating value in a business, talk a little bit more about what that actually means. What drives value in a business? So going back to my points, you know, we all talk about margins and performance of a business. So it has to be profitable. I mean, some people will buy unprofitable businesses, but they don't pay much for them. So if you're looking to exit on it, so you want profitable business, you would probably want higher than industry average margins because that shows you're better than the industry. You want um, the last three to five years, you would like growth, both profit and revenue, which shows the business is growing. You don't want a concentrated customer base um, because then if one customer leaves, you could lose all your value. So you want a diverse customer base. You want a good management team, which we discussed. You want a strategy, sustainable competitive advantage. You want a culture of continuous improvement. And you want employees who are committed and willing to drive for the business. And that, that's also another huge issue, I find. Um, and somehow I always say something bad about HR. But, um, you know, what I found is that c- companies have an employee base. And because of HR's role, and this is partly the way it's been created with legislation and rules, HR sees everybody like those little cardboard cutouts of people. But all people are different. So what drives those people to do what they do? And, you know, I think it works better when companies are small, CEOs know their employees closely, so they can do a bit of that. But even then, they lose sight of it. You know, their goal is, I want to grow this business. So profit and sales are the biggest things. Well, that employee might like that, but they may want something else. And if they're really good and they make a huge difference in your business, you should maybe think about that. So, you know, getting those employees tied in, it goes down to, does your management team know what your strategy is? Do all the employees, as you walk through the company, ask them, how do you make a difference to this business? How do you add value to the bottom line? And if they don't really know, now, I'm not saying all businesses like that, but if they all do know, it creates a hell of an impression to a buyer. I mean, everybody is now pulling the same way. It's like you've got a rowing team and everybody's going in the right way. Mm-hmm. So what does that process of, of creating alignment really look like in your mind? Um, well, I think there are a number of ones. You want employees to want to be there and want to be part of the business. They've got to understand what they do that makes a difference. And often they don't. Somebody needs to show them, you know, this is what you do, this is how it fits in into the, glo- the whole scheme of everything, and this is the difference it makes. And then we're going to build a reward system that, you know, um, rewards you for what you do in that way. So I often say, you know, you see people say, well, I've got this um, bonus system and it's tied to overall profitability. Well, if you've got some guy who's loading boxes and wagons, he may not understand how what he does affects overall profitability, and it be, may come nonsensical to him. If the bonus system doesn't mean anything to him or he doesn't understand how he affects it, then it becomes a lottery. He doesn't know whether he's going to win or lose, so he doesn't care, and he's not driving it. So if you bring it down to a bonus system that really ties down to what they want and what they can do that makes a difference, and you've tied that down, then I think you get better rewards because they now say, if I do X, I get Y. I understand that. So you're talking a lot about the human side of the the human side of the business. All businesses are just about people. I don't care what you sell. It could be biotechnology, it could be high tech, it could be old manufacturing. 
they're just about people. I mean, you know, I, I think of two stories. There was a large company I was involved with once upon a time, and when the CEO left, the resounding theme running around the office that day was Ding Dong, the witch is dead. Um, and, you know, what people don't realize, I, I interviewed a CEO when I was in graduate school, and I asked him about his management style, and he said, I think it's fear. And I think a lot of people do that. You know, a lot of CEOs know they've got control, so they, they're somewhat bullying in their attitude, but they don't build that love where the employees are going to lay their life down for them. What they're actually doing, a lot of the employees may be sabotaging them quietly behind their back because they hate them. And I contrast, so I contrast the CEO who left, and everybody's so happy he's left. And you've seen it sometimes when CEOs leave and the share price goes up. You know, the market's happy they've left. So there's not just a un, one or two people. But with another company I was involved with back in South Africa during the apartheid era, and it was run by a white man, and he probably had 500 employees, and he died. And um, they had a, a memorial service for him at a church out in one of the white suburbs. And in the apartheid times, um, Africans couldn't go to white areas easily. You need pass books, and there was restrictions, and there was harassment from the police and things. But at the day of his memorial service, 300 Africans showed up at that memorial service. So they managed to get from where they live, which was miles away, through very inefficient public transport and all the uncertainty to get there to pay their respects. So you think those are people who will do things for this person. And if your employees will do that for you, then you've got a team that's going to really help you win. Um, you know, I think somebody once said management is about getting six people to carry a heavy log up a mountain while you walk next to them, telling them how they can do it better, and they appreciate it. And so you've got to create what they're going to do for you. You know, they want to work for you. They want to help you succeed because they see their own success through you. They're not cogs. Um, I was speaking to a CEO recently, and I was talking to him about this, and he just looked at me and said, I give them a job. They should be grateful. And I said, well, if that's how you see it, believe it or not, they're not grateful. The job soon wears off. So in terms of dollars and cents, what's your observation in terms of the difference in value between the CEOs who really care about and are great leaders versus, uh, you know, just being enforcers or, you know, uh, dictators versus the ones who really inspire the the love and admiration of their employees? I don't think I can quantify that easily, but... You know, you've heard me say this, you know, selling a business is like dating at 50. And I think what people need to realize is when you're selling your business, how attractive is it to the other side? You know, it's like dating. Uh, you're putting something out there and you want somebody to like it back. What is happening in the market today is after the, the Great Recession and a lot of funds got burned, people are very interested in good businesses. Bad businesses just can't sell. You know, there's just a bad business. You can't give it away at a point. Nobody wants it. They don't care. They don't, they don't want to take the hassle of trying to fix it. You know, uh, I think Warren Buffett said about turnarounds, turnarounds seldom turn. <laughs> so they don't want the hassle. They see it as an underperforming asset. They might give you a few bucks on it if they think they can do something with it, but otherwise they just don't care. And so I always say, what makes you attractive to the other side? So they're going to want you. This is about selling an image. Perception is reality. It's got to come across as good. And so... Well, I can't give you a statistic, I'd say that if, you're, if a, manage, a buyer comes in and your management team is all together, your employees know what delivers value, you should outperform everybody else. So you're going to have those margins at the top. They're going to pay a much higher multiple because they see a business that's going somewhere. Mm. Also, they don't have to worry about how it's going to run in the future. Mm. So you know, let's go back to this selling a business is like dating over 50. Yes. <laughs> so tell us about what that dating process looks like. How long does it take to, to, to go from first date to getting married, let's say? And well, what, what are all the different steps in between? And I guess you probably have to go to the gym and get yourself in shape before you go and start getting, going on dating as well. Yeah, I, I think that's what I'm focused on more than the getting married. But we'll go through it. So I think 
the first thing you have to do is a realistic um, thought process. But what, what do you want out of this? And, you know, a bit like a relationship. Are you dating because you want to get married? You want a long-term committed relationship? Or you're just dating to meet people? And I hate to say it, but, you know, that's, you've got to say, what do I want? So am I selling this business because I want to step away and go live in Florida? Or I'm selling this business because I want somebody to put capital in, but I want to stay involved and grow to the next level? And what kind of person do I want to sell? So you've got to do some realistic analysis. The next part, I think, is, you know, we go back to cleaning the business up, fixing it up. It's kind of like dating. You clean up your apartment or your house. You don't want to bring somebody in, you know, three weeks' worth of laundry is just lying on the floor because it doesn't set the right impression. So this is cleaning your business up and creating that you know, perception that you are really worth having. And um, that's what we've talked about and getting them to do it, and that's where I think a lot of people let it down. And then you get um, an investment banker like myself hired, hopefully, to help you with this process because I think I've, I can personally say this, that, you know, I think I'm a pretty good negotiator and I know what I'm doing until it involves something I personally want, and then I'm useless because emotion gets involved, and emotion just kills us all. You know, they always tell you, be a successful investor, don't bring emotion to the table. So... You get somebody like me to help you, and you write a teaser. And I always think of a teaser as like a profile on Match.com. So you write the summary of why your business is good and what's good about it and where the business is and, you know, some true facts. And then that gets sent out to all the potential acquirers. And, you know, acquirers, are, I hate to say it, men are the ones usually selling and pushing themselves on women in these dating sites. So, you know, the acquirers are... The, they're like the women and the guys selling the business are like the men. And they're just going through the list going, nope, 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 not interested. Yes, I like this one. So how do you create that image that they look at and go, I got to have this. This is what I want. This is the best thing I've seen. I got to have it. And then, you know, you start the courtship. And what I tell people is you have this management team and you've created this teaser that tells everybody how wonderful you are. And if they come in and your management team isn't wonderful and they're all a bunch of yes men and, you know, you, your margins are not quite what you said they were, but you can explain it, and the perception starts to go away. It's kind of like dating. If you lie, the other person loses interest really quickly and says, you know, it's just not worth it. I don't trust you anymore. I'm gone. So you can't, and especially in our connected world, you know, I've had clients say, well, my, my management team, they're the known in the industry. And I look at them and I said, well, you know, I, I've done some Google searches. I can't find them. But a buyer, whether it's a strategic or a private equity group, they're going to bring in experts who know that industry. They don't buy things that they don't know. And if they don't know your management team, then they're not really known in the industry. And you may have said they are, but to the rest of the world, they're not. Yeah, your, their mother knows them. Exactly. And, you know, don't lie about awards. You know, just be honest, but portray everything well, but don't lie. And then when you get into the dating routine, you know, if you're exiting the business, that's fine. You know, you're gone. It doesn't matter. Um, but again, emotion does get involved. But if you're planning to stay on in some role and you want to grow this to the next level, then, you know, what I say to them is buyers bring money. Money is a commodity. Buyers also bring contacts and help. That's more important than the commodity. And so you've got to look at what do they bring that's going to help you take this business to the next level. And the next question, like a marriage or a, lo a serious relationship, is there are going to be rough days where there are issues that you've got to deal with. And there may not be issues between you, but it could lead there. You know, if you're missing your numbers or the market's turning against you, you've got to solve this problem together now because you're committed together. And can you work with these people through difficult times? You know, you've been an entrepreneur. It's all been yours. You, what you said was law. And now you've got to work with somebody else. And they've got a majority interest. And they can't actually fire you. So can you do that? And do you understand what that means in a relationship? Wow. So let's talk about the emotion. You mentioned that, you know, emotion is totally distorts your perceptions. And so t as you're going through this process of 
buying and selling a business with uh, a CEO where you said as you uh, before that this is their life, I can imagine that it could get pretty emotional. It is. Um, some CEOs can just never let go. You know, and I think the key is, um, I, I look at how do people make decisions and I say, you know, decisions, uh, d- a decision is about change. Am I going to change what I do? And change comprises three parts. And it's the desire for change, the vision of a post-change world, and then the plan for the change. So most CEOs, they may have a desire, but it's usually not that great unless suddenly one day they've just woken up exhausted. And we're seeing a bit of that, you know, the last few years where people put off selling because of the Great Recession, and they're just tired. I mean, they've spent six hard, hard years, and they're only back where they were six years ago, seven years ago, and they're tired. And they're like, okay, I want out. But a lot of successful entrepreneurs like, you know, Nah, I'm not that in that much pain. So then you say, well, here's the plan. We're going to do this, 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 and we're going to sell you business. Yeah, I got that. That's fine. I don't. And then what's the vision of the world afterwards? And that's where they just draw a blank. I don't have a world. This is my world. And if you take this world away, I don't have a world, so I don't want to do it. And, you know, um, and then you've got the issue where, you know, I hate to say it, there are some entrepreneurs, whether they're men or women, who their spouses, you know, I married you forever, but not for lunch. Don't come home. I don't want you in the house 24-7. So they have to deal with that. Or, you know, the one I love is where you speak to the entrepreneur and he says, or it's typically a he, you know, when I sell this business, we're moving down to the Keys and I'm going fishing. And his wife looks at him and says, no, we're not. My kids are here. My grandkids are here. I'm not leaving. You go wherever you like, but I'm staying right here. And so there's that communication, too, that they haven't done. So I think for successful entrepreneurs who exit a business, they have to have a vision of what they're going to do post it. And, you know, I say... Is it you want to get involved in charity? I mean, what's your legacy going to be? And you've got to think bigger than just this business. What is your legacy? What are you going to give back to a community? How are you going to change people's lives other than this business? Because this is the next section of your life. It's a new chapter. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just different. And those that can think through that and have plans, they do very well. And those that can't, they really struggle. Do they struggle in the actual sales process or they struggle afterwards? Uh, Both. Hmm. Um, They struggle. You know, I often say to clients, if you can... When you come to the negotiations, don't come. You tell your investment bankers, like myself, and you tell your lawyers what you want, and we'll go negotiate. And we'll come back and say, this is the best deal we got. And you can say, I like it or I don't. And if you don't like it, we'll go back and work some more. But if you sit at a table with the negotiating team, I can pretty much guarantee you that nobody on the other side of that table has the authority to make a decision. They either have to go back to a board, a committee, and get approval for whatever they've negotiated. And you, whatever you say is carved in stone. You're it. And you have a business to run. You know, deals sometimes die right before they close. I mean, I know a company that I was working with on 9-11. You know, deal was supposed to close the end of September. It never closed. 9-11 happened. The world changed. So you could have a great business business, and now it's not in the great shape it was anymore. So focus on your business on the next strategy. And in terms of the, you, you telling them, like, you can't come to the negotiating. No, I never say you can't. I say I recommend you don't come. I, I would never tell a client he can't come. He's more than welcome to sit there. I just say, go run your business. You know, one of the things um, that happens when you get in this process and a buyer gets interested and they sign a letter of intent and they're doing their due diligence, one of the first things you should get is, we want your numbers every month through this whole process till we close. We want to see how the company's performing every month. And if the CEO's distracted, you know, first of all, People, when companies are being sold, a lot of employees are not stupid. The men in suits suddenly appear. People are crawling through everything. They know something's going on. So either the CEO tells them, look, I'm selling the business, or they figure it out pretty quickly. 
which means you've got to create an environment where they want to stay and they think it's better for them to stay. Because otherwise, if you're not, your best employees have already got their resumes out and they're moving and looking for the next opportunity. And then, you know, your customers may get wind of it, unfortunately, or fortunately, the buyer may want to meet your best customers, which is not bad if it's a great thing for the business. But there's all this turmoil and you should be out working to keep that business running smoothly and showing everybody that there's no problems and the world is good. And if you're sitting in a small room like we're sitting now negotiating away for days on end and you're tired and you're not making business decisions anymore, you're losing that value. So what else can the CEOs do during this this process to minimize the amount of turmoil that's created during the sale process? Well, I think um, this is a key point, and you and I have discussed this separately earlier, was you need two strategies. The company has its strategy for whatever that is, to grow, become successful, be number one in its market, whatever it is. And then the owner has a separate strategy, which is I want to sell my business or I want to exit my business, however the exit structured. And you should keep executing the grow of this company business, irrelevant to what happens selling it. So focus on that. The sale will either happen or it won't, and nobody can control that. I mean, we can work towards it, and everybody's working towards the goal, believe me, on the team that's helping you sell it. But that may fall apart. But if you stop focusing on what grows the business, you're lost in the business loss. So just focus on what you're going to do. You know, And if you built a management team that are totally competent, and you don't need to be there, and the business runs fine, and you're selling it, you can come to the meetings, or you can go sit on a beach and just enjoy life. Life is short. You know, I, I always tell people, when I talk to them, I said, you know, you should, a lot of people say to me, oh, this is irrelevant. I'm going to keep my business, and I want my kids to run it, my kids' kids. And I said, you know, if your plan is to keep your business in the family for 10 generations, that is absolutely wonderful. I, I, I can't think of anything better. But you should run your business as though you're going to sell it tomorrow. And I use two examples, Christopher Reeve. One weekend you're out on a horse, and the next weekend, you're, the next day you're paralyzed in a bed, not able to move. What happens to your business? You know, your biggest asset now loses value. Your family's focused on you. Your company's leadership. And there was another example I use: um, Jean Dominic Bobby, who was a Frenchman. He was editor of Elle magazine. Driving, he dropped his kids at his ex-wife's house on a Friday night. Driving to go see his girlfriend, felt ill, pulled over, woke up three months later in a hospital. He had had a stroke, and he was suffering from locked-in syndrome. The only thing he could do is blink his eyes. So, you know, life is short. Make the most of it. Hmm. And so with the, the, the executable business strategy, we talked a little bit about that earlier. And then you have the strategy for running the business. And so how much do you think the, the CEO, as they're thinking about this, should focus on either as they're going through this process? Because I imagine they have to be at least a little bit involved in both. And what's your finding in terms of best practice, in terms of how much time the CEO should expect to commit to the process of selling the business. The issue God is most self-created CEOs believe they have to control everything, so that's why they want to be involved in the sell process. And they forget their business. And I, again, I just think stay focused on the business. Mm -hmm. So who else is, you mentioned bankers, and obviously you know, you'd be the bank, uh, an investment yeah. banker, and you know there are other bankers. And then who else is on the who else is on the deal team? I think um, you know, again, bigger CEOs who've done this will know the process. They understand it, but you need a, a team like us who's going to come in and help you manage it. And there's a lot of process. You can't do this by yourself. You know, it's just too much. The second thing is you need a legal team. And most entrepreneurs say, well, you know, I've got my my lawyer, Fred, who's done everything for me, and you're like, is he an M&A lawyer? Well, no, but he says he knows a bit about it. This is not the right guy. This is, you know, it's like doctors. You're having brain surgery, you want a brain surgeon. 
um, get an M&A lawyer and get them involved. With your accountants, a lot of entrepreneurs, because of the way the U.S. works, and there's nothing, this is not a criticism, but all they need is a tax return. Every year, the accountant does a tax return. Well, if your accountant does a tax return and you're selling your business, you want your accounts at least reviewed or audited because that gives the buyer confidence in them. If your accountant doesn't do reviews or audits, we need to get a new accountant in. So what I, and then, you know, I often say to them, you also need your wealth manager and you need a real wealth manager who can help you figure out what you're going to do with all these assets when you get the money. So you need a different team to get you through this. And the hard thing for a lot of entrepreneurs is their existing team of their accountant and their lawyer and their wealth manager are the people they've been with for years. They're very comfortable with these people. And you're telling them that this isn't the right team anymore. And that's hard for them to get to. But I think they need to do that. Again, with their employees, um, we were selling a company once, and they, the owner had this um, COO who was way out of her depth. And she knew she was out of her depth. So the only way she could keep everything together was to create total discourse in the, within the company to the point he was going to shut it down. He hated dealing with the office because every time he went in there, everybody was fighting and everything was wrong. And he had a mat outside his door that just said, go away. And we went and we said, you know, she, you have to let her go. And he's like, well, she started with me. She was the first person I hired. Well, I'm sorry, but she has to go. So he said, well, I can't fire her. And I said, well, we'll fire her. But you have to make her a very fair offer and be reasonable and, be, you know, show her respect. And she grabbed, out, she grabbed the offer with both hands and said, I've been waiting for this. I just need to go. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm miserable. So, you know, look at your management team. Are they the right team when you're selling your business that will take it to the next level? Because if they're not the best team, then... Again, you come back to what are you selling? Yeah, and I also hear one of the other themes that you were mentioning before about emotion and um, supporting the CEO and making objective, non-emotional decisions. And what other places do you think that that's really important? Um, so you mentioned negotiating. Obviously, I imagine the sale price is one of the, a big emotional trigger. Um, the management team is probably another emotional trigger. Are there any other big emotional triggers that you're finding in the, in the deal process? Um, no, they're not emotional triggers as such. There's just always peculiarities because you're dealing about people again and often families. And so I think what happens is when you start to get the business ready for sale, you start to deal with a lot of family issues that have never been dealt with. And people have to just face up and deal with them. And, you know, it can be things like a lot of smaller, when I say smaller, very successful businesses, but they're, they're, um, they're a lifestyle business. They pay all the expenses. They pay for everything. And so people don't realize how much they're taking out of that business. And then when you suddenly say, well, you can't run all these expenses through the business because you're not going to own it, they suddenly look at that and they go, whoa, that's a lot of money. Where am I going to get that much money from? So that creates one issue. The other one is do they give employment to all sorts of family members who don't actually do anything? They just collect a paycheck. I mean, they kind of quasi-show up every so often. And you say, well, you've got to get rid of those people. They've got to come off the payroll because the buyer's not going to keep them. They're gone, so why do we have them here? And that creates issues, especially if it's, you know, the favorite child or the second wife or something. It just, you know, you got that. Um, we were looking at selling a business, and we were going through with the client a list of things, and we said, you know, you've got at least 20 non-performing accounts in this business. They're not big, but they've never paid. 20 non-performing customers. Customers. They just don't pay. They get services, but they've never paid, and we can't ever find them having paid. And there was a long silence, and then the owner said, well, um, we don't really know, but we think that's kind of like my dad's second family, and it was just guaranteed that they would never pay for service as long as they lived. 
Did you say second family? <laughs> yes, I did. And, you know, you get these things. I hate to say it. This is just life that comes out. But you're like, okay, so how are we going to deal with this? I mean, you know, you may be uncomfortable admitting your dad did this way back when. But we now have to deal with this with the buyer because the buyer's not giving these 20 people free ride. So either you're going to carve out some cash and give it to them or you're going to figure out a way to deal with it. So those are the kind of issues we deal with. So some, often some family histories rise to the surface. That so are these things that you would normally try to take care of before? Oh, God, yes. You, you, never want, you want this all cleaned up before a buyer even shows up. You would hopefully, the buyer will never even really know about it. You've got it all cleaned up, dealt with, put away. And if they do find out about it, you say, yes, that was the situation. We fixed it. And there's nothing for you to worry about. How long does it take? So how, how far in advance of the sale do you really need to get involved to make, all, make that all work? You know, personally, I would say that a good entrepreneur planning an exit should plan three years out. Most don't. Most tell me they're ready for sale. And the classic thing I always say is I meet them and they say, oh, I'm ready to sell. My business is just right. And I pull out a buyer's due diligence list, which is about an inch and a half thick. And I say, complete this by next week and I'll come back and look at it. And they're like, I go back and they're like, you're crazy. Nobody's ever going to ask us all these questions. I'm like, well, that was the list I used when I was a buyer. I don't think anything's changed. Yes, we do ask. And he goes, well, it's irrelevant. I said, well, you're going to say yes or no. And everything you say yes or no to is going to go into the reps and warranties of the contract. And you're going to be held accountable for it. So let's go through it and figure it out. So, you know, again, they're not focused on these things. These are things they don't pay attention to. Um, if you speak to any M&A attorney, you know, they're recreating board minutes the night before closing sometimes or the day, week before closing trying to cover up all the things the company's doing, which it never got formal permission to do. And that should be done well in advance. We had a client where we were selling his business for about $20 million. And, you know, he had started his business many years before with a partner. His partner had given up after two years. He had bought his partner out for like $20,000. But he had no documentation. He couldn't find any of the documentation. And we said, well, you need to go get share certificates and transfer forms and all canceled. And he said, well, my partner moved to Montana. He's an artist somewhere in Montana. I don't know where he is. I said, well, you better go find him. But, you know, we don't have a buyer committing now, but we think it's going to be about a $20 million deal. And you need to ask him before that $20 million. You know, if you go up to him and say, I need you to sign this because tomorrow I'm getting $20 million, he may not agree to the 20000 that he, you, he took, you gave him before. So there's just this house cleaning. And I go back to perception is reality. You gotta, when the buyer comes in, they're going to do due diligence. And the easier it is for them to find everything, and if they ask you for anything, you can give it to them right away, the better you look. You're more professional, you're more functional, and then they're going to pay a higher price. You know, as I always say, it's much easier to sell a division of GE than it is to sell some of these small companies. Because at GE, you turn to the CFO and the general counsel and you say, I need this, 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 and this. And the next day it arrives. You turn to smaller companies and you say, I need this, this, and this. And they look at you and they go, what's that? So, you know, they need a lot of work to clean up, prepare, and create that perception that they're fully well-oiled humming machine. What are the things that you found that people need to clean up the most? You know, what are the, you know, as you're going through this process, where are the, the hot spots that you would say you find most often? Um, you know, I can't give you anything specific, and I know that sounds terrible because it varies, but there, there's some simple things. What often happens with smaller companies is they'll agree a price. The buyer will say, I'll pay you six times EBITDA, and that's the price we're going to pay. And so then they go through the process, and the buyer says, now, I want your accounts audited or reviewed. They've only, you've only had a tax return done. So they go, the auditor comes in, and he audits them. And then the EBITDA is no longer what the seller thought it was, but it's maybe 10% lower because there's been no proper accounting treatment of any of these items. So the buyer writes him a check, and the seller's like, well, that's not the price. And he goes, yes, I said I pay you six times EBITDA. Your order to EBITDA is X. And the seller's never realized that because he's never had the accounts reviewed. So that's kind of one issue. Um, that, you know, there are just so many little things, it's hard to say. 
specifically what it is, but they're just all over little, you know, a lot of people talk about sometimes they don't have their sales tax paid properly or they're, you know, I, I don't think they're ever deliberately trying to do things wrong. They just don't cover it all because either they don't have good systems because systems don't interest them. This is not what they're interested in. You know, as I say, HR um, due diligence is easiest. Have you checked all the boxes? Do you have all the forms ready to submit? And a lot of them don't. And, you know, so that's the buyer goes through then goes, okay, half of this is incomplete. What else do I have to now worry about that you don't have complete? What are the major items that are on that due diligence list? <laughs> In, or the major categories, let's say. Um, there's financial. So all your financial, your performance, your cash flow, P&L, balance sheet, receivables, payables, inventory lists. Uh, um, there's a whole set on litigation by customers, by other parties. There's legal contracts. Um, insurance, there's business on sales, marketing within the business, there's a huge HR section, IP rights, do you have all your IP rights filed, do you have the patents you claim you have, do you have, you know, a stupid thing is like I always say to people, the software, everybody has all these computers and all the software, do you have a list anywhere of the serial number of every computer you own and the serial number of every software package that's on it because, you know, you can't have illegal copies of software. And what happens with some of these companies is when they're buying a small business, you know, small businesses, again, I'm not saying they're trying to steal anything, but they're not paying attention to this. So if I'm Joe Smith and I run a small business, say small $20 million in revenue and I'm making a couple of million and I'm going to get bought out by a huge company that's a billion-dollar company, you know, a software provider might say, I'm not going to sue Joe Smith. He's got no money. But that billion-dollar company, I'll sue them for noncompliance. So do you have records of all this stuff? And it just is boring horrible filing stuff. So get a good anal office manager that'll clean it all up for you. Wow. And uh, so if somebody wanted to get a copy of a, a sample of a due diligence list, do you do you know like where would be a good place for them to take a look at what might be on it as they're thinking about this process? Um, I think they could, you might be able to get one online. I've never tried. I mean, I have my own. Most bankers do. But I think there are two things. One is, can you complete it? And then how do we deal with it? When we've completed it, we need to go through it and figure out how to improve things. Mm-hmm. And how are you going to make it look better? You know, it's, it's kind of like I said on your house. What I look at it as is if I'm selling your house and I come in and I look at it and I say, you know, that AC unit looks kind of questionable. Let's get somebody to inspect it. And they come back and they say, yes, you know, it may die, it may not die. We could replace it. It's going to cost X. We can fix it. It's going to cost Y or you can live with it. Now you know the range. When you sell, your, sell the house, the buyer comes in and says that AC unit's no good. I want to take X off the price. You at least know where to argue with them and, you know, fight them and say, well, no, you're taking too much off. It's only worth this or I'll replace it. You can make an informed decision. That's what I see the due diligence list for. So when we find issues, can we create enough of an informed decision that when we're negotiating price, we know what we're doing around those items? Because, again, when you're selling a business, it's like selling a house. The buyer comes and says, I'm going to pay you X, you know, either a multiple of EBITDA or a flat number. And then they do their due diligence and they come back and they say, we want these adjustments because of all these things we found. You know, one is you've spent nothing on capital equipment in your business for the last six years. And we figure from our experts, it needs half a million of capital in the plant. So we're just going to deduct half a million straight off the purchase price. So these are the things you have to be prepared for. And, you know, the more information you have to make a more informed decision and negotiate, the better off you are. And so you said that you advised three years. Yeah, I think three years because... You can do this in a very short time. I mean, you know, flat out six months, no sweat. But the guy has to run his business. All the employees have to run a business. You know, this is not about fixing up a business and doing nothing else. You've still got clients to service. You've got products to get out. You've got all this other stuff. So I say three years, you can do it in the background without distracting people from what they're still trying to do. 
It also gives you time because what happens, and you work with people on strategy, you know, and you talk about how strategy delivers money. So what I always say to them is when we go through this process, if we find something we can fix, either with ours helping you or bringing in a consultant, and it can add to your bottom line, when you sell that, that's already on the bottom line. So the two things, I can go to a buyer and, I, and say, you know, my bottom line's X plus 10 because I found something that increases it by 10. Or I can go to a buyer and say, it's X, but by the way, I just did all this wonderful stuff and you're going to get an extra $10 on the bottom line next year. Which one do you think he's going to believe? So the more you can do beforehand that it shows it's sustainable, it's a trend, you've made these improvements, the better off you are. And so the three years is to get you ready for sale. How long does the actual sale process take? I would say realistically, um, it's somewhere between, realistically, you know, four months is really on the tight end. Nine months is probably realistic, depending on where they are, because you've got to come in, you've got to analyze the business, then you've got to approach the buyers. Once you've got a buyer interested, you could probably close it, you know, three months allowing them to do their due diligence, negotiate, raise the money, and close. But it's the front end, getting all the information ready, figuring out who you're going to approach. And does it differ at all by the, the size of the deal or the industry or you know any particular variables that will change the, or affect the time that, that it takes? Um, private equity companies move a lot faster because that's what they're in the business of. Strategic buyers typically pay more, well, they used to, but they move slower. They have other things going on. It's not always their top-of-mind thing. So it just depends on which. You say that strategic buyers used to pay more? They did. Um, sometimes they do, but not always now. Some of the private equity guys, because they, they've become kind of strategic. They have multiple platform companies. They're buying little companies to go onto platforms. So the, mar- the multiples are getting a little closer. But strategics, because they could cut out a lot of the cost. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm a strategic and I buy a company and really all I'm doing is adding another sales channel or another product line, I can get rid of a lot of overhead. Mm-hmm. And uh, are there any other trends that are happening in 2015 that you think are really important for for listeners to be aware of? No, um, I think the key one is it's a great market and you should, you know, take it while it's there. I always talk about there's a difference between value and price. Uh, I think Warren Buffett said it best, you know, value is what you get, price is what you pay. And so if the value of your business is 20 million and somebody's offering you 30, bite their hand off, take the money, go live somewhere nice. Um, The problem is that this market is really good at the moment. If it changes, it could stay irrational longer than you could stay solvent or sober, as somebody once told me. So, you know, if you value your business is 30 and they're offering you 20 and you're needing 30 to retire and live on your desert island, you know, you may be stuck for a very long time. So, you know, what I would say to people, if you're thinking of exiting or even partially, and partial exit's also a way to say, look at this, say, you know, I don't want to sell the whole business, but I'm willing to sell either 70%, 50%, 30%. But I'm looking for somebody, I want to take some money off the table and put it somewhere else safe. And I want a partner who's going to start to carry some of this burden. You know, I think one of the things, I, I wrote a blog post a while ago, which was something I, I, I roll a blade for um, a hobby. And I was out skating one night with some guys in town. We did about 20 miles and I was exhausted when I got back to my car. I was out of shape. And I forgot and I put a bike rack on the back of my trunk for my kids' bikes. And I was so tired, I threw my skates in my trunk and just closed the trunk, and I hit myself in the face with the bike rack. And I, I wrote this blog saying, don't hit yourself in the face with the bike rack. And what I was talking about is in corporates, again, I go back to where the CEO and all the employees are running 100 miles an hour. They've cut themselves down to a skeleton stuff to keep, you know, keep financially good, and now markets come back, they're convinced that they're not sure they want to hire more people. But everybody's focused right, you know, six inches in front of their nose trying to keep things going. Nobody's sitting up looking at the strategy, what the long term, and you're going to run into a wall. Mm. something's going to hit you you don't see coming. 
Wow. So you said that the the markets can stay irrational longer. Well, I didn't than- say that. Um, Keynes, the famous economist, said markets can stay, stay irrational. irrational. But it's true. I mean, they do. You know, there are times, look, you know, when the Great Recession hit, I believe Ford debt was selling for, you know, 35% of its face value. Ford never took any money from the government. So, you know, you could buy a $1,000 bond for $350 and it had a coupon of about 6%, which people would kill for today. And nobody wanted it. And so that's the problem. You know, we talk about value and we talk about all these things, but humans are emotional things. And we have herd instinct. And when everybody runs for the door, we run right with them and we don't want anything else. So when times get bad, you can't give your business away. Nobody wants it. And then when times are good, everybody will take it and fight for it. So, And so, you know, given that that point of view, any thoughts on how long the market's going to stay good? Any Any thoughts? You know, if I knew that, I wouldn't be doing this. I'd be sitting on a beach somewhere. <laughs> That's the problem. We never know when things are going to change. But the only thing I always tell people is, you know, the thing you've got to realize is we don't have really half as much control of our life and destiny as we think we do. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Mark. It's been a, a really great, great conversation. And so if people want to get in touch with you, how, how can they do that? Um, they can reach me on email. Um, Actually, or the easiest way is to reach me on my website, which is www.c for Charlie, f for Freddie, a for Apple, w for worldwide.com slash Atlanta. And our office will come up and Mark Borelli is there. Click on me. You can email me. You can call me. That's probably the easiest way to get hold of me. Great. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you. And uh, that's our episode of CEO Exclusive. Please join us again next week at 8 o'clock on Tuesday. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at AnonaEnterprises.com.